done in a manner of spirit and truth. Be with Brother Terrence as he relates a portion of your word. Give him a ready recollection of the lesson that he has prepared. Help us to open our minds and absorb the information conveyed and apply it to our lives so that we might be more mature Christians. Father, be with those number of our number who are sick. Be with our visitors as they travel to their various locations today. And again, Father, we are thankful for all the blessings of life that you bestow upon us, most especially that of your son and his willingness to hang upon that cruel cross and pay the debt that we owe. We are so thankful for your love. We love you. And Father, we ask for your forgiveness of our sins when we stumble. All these things we humbly pray in Jesus' blessed name. Amen. Amen. So, our series has been called Understanding the Bible. We've been going through the different genres, different sections of the Bible uh, for the last, well, several months now. And uh, last week I didn't have any slides from Isaiah, so I'll click through those for a little bit so you can kind of see and refresh a little bit what we talked about last week. But we'll mostly move on to Jeremiah as we continue studying the major prophets. So, when we talked about Isaiah, we went through a little bit of an outline of the chapter. Or the book we talked about how there was two major sections. Right, the first thirty-nine chapters were all present tense prophecies. They were earlier, early kind of middle of Isaiah's life, and then there's this big time gap between thirty-nine and forty. And so forty through sixty-six, they are focused on the future. Uh, they prophesy about the the exile that's coming. They're very future focused, and so there's we said you could really divide the book up two major ways. And then we talked about some of the major themes like trusting in God, the providence of God, the trusting in God and not trusting in enemies, not trusting in the powers of man. And, of, um, and then, of course, we talked a little bit about Isaiah 53, which is in that bottom section there. And we talked a little bit about Isaiah 53 is one of the more quoted passages of Isaiah in the Gospels because it, it is a prophecy that we believe to be about Jesus that was fulfilled in Jesus, talking about God's suffering servant. And, and you can see up there that that was in that section about Restoring God's people, one of those future prophecies about how God will restore his people, and he will restore his people when sin is taken away. And so we talked about that a lot as we talked about Isaiah 53. We'll get forward because i got a lot to cover and not enough time to do it as always. So Jeremiah. We don't hear a ton of lessons from Jeremiah. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. Because he lived through the very end of Judah's destruction, and he, he actually lived through that exile we talked about when we studied the historical kings. Uh, he, he, he prophesied under the reign of three different kings. He started under Josiah, which was the last faithful king. If you remember that timeline, uh, Josiah was the last faithful king of Israel. And so Jeremiah started under Josiah. He started under a faithful king. And he kind of witnessed firsthand the slow demise of the, the people before they got carried off into exile. So Jeremiah endured a lot. He was very persecuted. And so for that, for that and many other reasons, he is often called the weeping prophet. And we also know, and we've mentioned this before, he also wrote Lamentations. I think he's the only, the only prophet that wrote two books, top of my head. So he wrote Jeremiah, and he also wrote Lamentations. Lamentations fits more the category of poetry than prophecy. So we'll talk about that uh, in several weeks when we talk about Psalms and Song of Solomon and all that. So... So we'll, we'll kind of jump right into the text because it'll tell us a little bit about Jeremiah because just sort of some biographic info. You remember when we studied Isaiah, we said it, that Isaiah was really a collection of Isaiah's prophecies, kind of an anthology. And so it really didn't talk much about Isaiah himself. The total opposite is true in Jeremiah. We, we still have some prophecy, but Jeremiah tells us a lot about Jeremiah himself. He's, he's actually a major figure in his own 
Um, his story plays very heavily into what we know about his prophecy. So we, we know a lot more about Jeremiah. So we'll read just a little bit from the beginning of his story, from the call of Jeremiah. And if someone could read for us Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. This might sound familiar to us, but Jeremiah 1, verse 4 and 5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. So I bet we've probably heard that before. I know I certainly have heard that quoted a lot, but you probably didn't know it pertained to the call of Isaiah. Now you do. So Isaiah called as a, as a young man. He even says his excuse later, well, sort of as a defense or maybe just being scared. He says, I am only a youth. So we know he was called by the Lord when he still lived with his parents. And uh, again, unlike Isaiah, Jeremiah has frequent dating. In fact, if you looked at the very beginning of the book, just one of those first couple verses we did not read, but you'll see that it was the, the reign of this, the year of this, so many years after the reign of this person, this person, this person. And that's really kind of how we date the events and things like that that happen in these kind of books. And Jeremiah does that several times throughout. So, so we know the timeline of Jeremiah a lot better than we do the timeline of Isaiah. And so like I said, he prophesied under Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. And then we also know he had a personal scribe. He had a personal scribe whose name was Baruch. That's mentioned in Jeremiah 36.1, Jeremiah 45.3. And Jeremiah comes from a line of priests. His son or his father's name was, or he come, he's a descendant of, uh, Ab Abiathar, who is, uh, who is in the service of Adonijah, one of the kings. And you can, you can find these names mentioned if you just want to kind of tie the beginning of Jeremiah to the kings. You, you can read about that in 1 Kings 2. But I say that because he's from this priestly lineage, but back in, in sort of that period of conflict after Solomon, uh, the, the priests who served under the, one of the sons of Solomon were actually deposed because the, the other son kind of won sort of that conflict. And so Jeremiah is from really a deposed priestly lineage, which means he kind of has this holy status. He still has important before God. But in terms of the society, you remember we've talked a lot about how Lineage, uh, descendants, uh, ancestors, all that's really important, especially to, to Israel, especially in this time period. And they're like, oh, we, we know who your grandfathers are. We're not listening to you. The kings didn't listen to you. Why should we listen to you? And so even his lineage plays kind of a big role in his ability to prophecy. I'll go ahead and click to the next slide and we'll, yeah, okay, see. Should have done that already. So he has a personal scribe named Baruch. He was from this priestly lineage. He was from a small town outside of Jerusalem. He was part of a, a very small tribe of the 12 tribes and from this deposed lineage. So he's, he's close enough to Jerusalem and he's close enough to really the, the social and religious hub of Israel. He's close enough to be familiar with it, to know it, to know about it. But he's, he's far enough removed that he has no fear preaching against what's going on there. And as we'll talk about in a moment, Jeremiah's relationship with the city of Jerusalem is a big, big deal. Because, again, before the exile, we're, we're still a, a hub of religious, of social activity. The, the people, even the people who aren't very devout in terms of their religious commitment to God, they're at Jerusalem. That, that's really just where all the activity takes place. And so Jeremiah often, frequently throughout his, the book, he goes to Jerusalem to do his, his prophesying. He goes to Jerusalem to prophesy, to cry against what the king is doing or to cry against what the, the people are doing. So we talked about he reigned under Josiah. Josiah dies in 2 Kings 23. And so there's this slow political, social, financial, moral, spiritual decay afterward. 
as we, we've studied many times when we studied the historical books and we studied Samuel and Kings and Judges and all that, as we see that, that when the leadership is strong, the people are strong. Typically, when the leadership obeys God, the people will typically follow God. But when the leadership is weak, when the leadership is disobedient, when the leadership strays from God, it is only a matter of time before the people follow suit in this time period. So that's what happens in the time of Jeremiah. And again, you can read about that sort of a, at least not quite a parallel passage, I wouldn't say, but it's talked about a little bit in 2 Kings 23. Other prophets who lived at the same time in Jeremiah include Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, if you're just trying to put this on a timeline. And so there's, there's a lot of political shifting that goes on. Not only does his own king die and get replaced by a king who's no good, at the same time, Babylon was the world power, but they get replaced by Assyria. And, they quick, and Israel quickly finds out the new boss is the same as the old boss. They think, ah, someone's defeated our hated enemies, Babylon. And then Assyria quickly says, we're not going to deal very nicely with you either. And so that features heavily in some of Jeremiah's prophecies. Yeah, no, you're good. Yeah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, prophesied about the same time as Jeremiah. Other, other questions, thoughts, comments? I think Jeremiah, a lot of people would say in verse 5 that Jeremiah was only trying to identify himself to the people. I think he was telling the people what God is saying. That every, God knows everybody where they are conceived in their mother's womb. <laughs> Yeah, I've certainly used, heard that verse used that way a lot. Um, but at least in the, in the context of, of chapter 1, he is certainly talking just about this specific sort of prophetic call. Um, I would love to say that I, uh, I knew I was going to be a speaker for God from the youth, but I did not. So if God knew, he didn't tell me until about five years ago. Um, so, but yeah, that, that's a very, we hear that verse used a lot for sure. So again, when we were talking about Isaiah, we talked about how it's this, this prophetic anthology. It's really this collection of the prophecies of Isaiah, the preaching of Isaiah for, from all kind of across his life. Jeremiah has a lot, of, a lot of different stuff when we start reading through it. It has a lot of autobiography. Obviously, it starts out he's telling his own story. It goes into some poetry later that we, we would look at and we would say that looks more like uh, maybe some of the parts of the Psalms or things like that. It's some spoken sermons, some written sermons, and then several of uh, what we would call those historical narratives or just several stories about Jeremiah's life. And so we'll see, unlike Isaiah, Isaiah, again, if you want to know what is prophecy versus what we would call narrative, the easiest way is just to look at your Bible. If it looks like the way all the Psalms look, it's probably prophecy. If it looks like the justified normal text like you'd see in any other book, he's probably telling you a story about his life. And Obviously, if you read it, you'll see that the, the content is very different. The structure is different. And so Isaiah is a big part of his own story. Um, I'm sorry, Jeremiah is a big part of his own story. Isaiah was really, he was very much the prototypical mouthpiece for God. Almost the entire book of Isaiah is nothing but Isaiah saying, the word of the Lord says this, God says this, God says this to the people. But in Jeremiah, his own life was very ingrained into the prophecy. Um, we see the same thing with Ezekiel where uh, Jeremiah is called to live a certain way or Jeremiah himself is called to do something. And, and what Jeremiah does is sort of an object lesson for the people. And so we'll talk about some of those passages here in a moment. In terms of the structure of it, I'm trying to think if I have an outline slide. Good. 
That's sort of the outline of Jeremiah, begins with his introduction. Uh, two through six talk mostly about Israel's uh, breaking away from the covenant. They're not being honest. They're not being true to God. And that, of course, segues into about chapter seven through ten, where they're, they're not being true. Why? Well, because they have a false idea of religion. They have this idea that's very external. If, if you've been with uh, us in Van's class on Wednesday night, we see this in pretty much all of the minor prophets as well. You'll find this just about in every book of prophecy, but this idea that they were concerned with, with doing the right things, but not really with being the right people. They would offer the sacrifices. They would sing the, the songs of trumpet on the right day, but God says, but then you go home and you worship other gods. Or you go into your houses and you have little trinkets of the Canaanite gods or the Hittite gods. You, you still worship other people. And so he, Jeremiah prophesies against this false religion and against idolatry. And I, I talked about how Jeremiah himself is a big deal. Chapter 11 through 20, we see a lot of Jeremiah's personal struggles. So he, he documents some of his own um, internal issues with God, his, his own battlings with, with God, with what God is calling him to do, with the difficulty of his calling, with sort of the, 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 the mind game or the inner conflict, you will, when, when Isaiah or Jeremiah is called to, to preach these hard messages, he's called to preach to people who never listen, who never listen, who never turn away, who never seem to obey God. And so that, 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 hurt, that struggles. It's a struggle for Jeremiah. So he, he struggles with God. He struggles with Judah. He struggles with the people. 20, 21 through 29 are the confrontations with the king. He, he goes and he confronts the kings of Israel in, in sort of chapter 21 through 29. And then later we see again, we talked about this with Isaiah, but again, prophecies of restoration and prophecies of judgment. And this is a repeated theme throughout the prophets as well, that when, when God's people are obedient, there will always be a hope of promise for them. I guess I'll say it this way. When God's people are disobedient, there is judgment. When God's people are disobedient, there is judgment. But even when they have been disobedient, even though they have sinned, even when they have distanced themselves from God, if they are willing to repent, there is always this promise of hope. There is always this promise of salvation. Jeremiah says it, it is not too late yet to turn your back, uh, to turn back to God. And much like the preaching of the New Testament, Jeremiah says, but there will be a time when it is too late. And unfortunately, that's what Jeremiah 52 is about. Jeremiah 52 is about the fall of Jerusalem, about the fall of Jerusalem to its enemies. It's sort of the conclusion and so Jeremiah's call and the fall of Jerusalem kind of bookend these different prophecies. Questions, comments, thoughts so far? Like I said, I know we're throwing a lot of information at you, but when we talk about studying some of these passages, and we'll do the same thing with this section as we did with uh, Second Kings and the historical books, uh, after we're done sort of overviewing Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel, We'll pick a couple passages. Isaiah 53 will probably be one of them since we talked about it so much. Um, we'll probably look at Jeremiah 29 when we study this in, in a couple weeks. But we'll pick a couple passages and we'll look at sort of what they mean, how we can apply them, how we can interpret them. But you need a lot of this stuff for it to make sense. You need the context. I could show up and I could tell you this is the context of Jeremiah. Just take my word for it. But it's easier to do a little bit more digging. So questions, comments, thoughts before we get into the themes and some of the big ideas. Okay. I'll just talk the whole time if you let me. So if you've got questions, uh, throw your hand up, holler, whatever you're comfortable with. So major themes. Now the, the three major ones really are Jeremiah and the city, uh, Jeremiah and the nature of God, and then Jeremiah and the nature of man. And, and the contrast between the nature of God and the nature of man. 
as I said, the big thing is the city. Because, again, he, he grew up on the outskirts of the city. So if you think about it, he's familiar with the people, right? He, he's not a foreigner. He's not an alien. It's not that he's never been there before. He knows the city, but he's, but he's not one of these guys who's, who's too close to see the forest for the trees. You've probably experienced this in your own life. When you're going through the problem, sometimes you are the worst person to ask on how to solve the problem. Sometimes your, your friends or your, your family, they can comment like, oh, why don't you just do this? Well, I didn't think about doing that, okay? I didn't, I didn't think about that at the time. And so Jeremiah is removed from the problem a little bit, and he's not too ingrained to be affected by the corruption that we know exists in Jerusalem during some of the fallen kings. So he's, so he's just enough away to, to be able to see the forest for the trees, to be able to see the big picture, but he's close enough that, that he knows these people. He considers them his own people. He knows the city. He knows those kings. He knows the priests. He knows the people, and he knows how it, how it kind of clicks, how it works. And so we see that his own... Grief. I mentioned that some of those middle chapters, 11 through 20, talk about Jeremiah's struggles. Well, his own grief is very present. We don't see this with a lot of the prophets, but Jeremiah is very honest in his, in his struggling with God. I've mentioned this once before already, but I tell people all the time when, when someone, because I, I get a lot of people who will, who will say, like, I, I don't feel close to God, you know, or they'll say, and I say a lot of people, oftentimes people who have maybe not been to church a while, have never really found a, a spiritual community that clicks for them, or if they're just going through a lot, they'll say, I just don't feel close to God right now. And I always encourage people to go read Lamentations. You remember Lamentations is the other book Jeremiah wrote. Because Lamentations is a lot of prayer and a lot of talking to God in ways you've probably never heard somebody talk to God. It's a lot of, I'm angry at you. Why are you doing this to me? Yeah, I believe you're God, but this is horrible. Why did you, it's a lot of honest uh, uh, crying, a lot of honest, just a lot of honesty with God. And so I encourage people, if, if you feel not close to God, it's probably because you don't realize that, hey, even when you're upset, God wants you to be honest with him. Even if you're mad at God. Jeremiah's very mad at God in Lamentations, and he tells him. Now it kind of gets resolved by the end. You know, Jeremiah doesn't just sit and be mad at God for 40 years. He works through it. But he's, he, Jeremiah's grief as it relates to the people of Jerusalem, is a big, big player in this book. We see that he, he loves the people. He wants them to repent. He wants them to be saved. He wants the city to survive, but they just will not listen. Jeremiah is a great book for preachers. Mostly a joke. Mostly a joke. So, so I see Jeremiah as a major character also because a lot of the minor characters, the rebellious kings, the unruly priests, the, the false prophets, the people who oppose him, or even the people who support him, th their relationship is really all... We really only know them through their relationship with Jeremiah. So, so their relationship, they're viewed kind of in contrast to him. Their actions are either judged sort of by Jeremiah's light. And so Jeremiah himself is a, is a major character in the book, which is not very common for the prophets. The sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is a big, big deal in Jeremiah. Uh, look at chapter 1, which is where this tone kind of gets set. A lot of these things we can see in the very first chapter, but we'll see them come resurface over and over later on. Really, we can see what I'm talking about from verse 15 all the way through 19. But someone go ahead and read for us just verse 17, verse 17, 18, and 19 of chapter 1, please. Someone doesn't mind reading. Jeremiah 1, verse 17 through 19. Therefore, prepare yourselves and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before their faces, lest I dismay you before them. For behold, I have made you this day a fortified city and an iron pillar, and 
God is the one who calls Jeremiah. God is the one who puts his words in his mouth. And you'll notice he says, I will make you a fortified city. He calls Jeremiah to preach against Jerusalem. Jerusalem has these big walls. Jerusalem is a very fortified city, right? It has several gates that you usually can't just get into the city anyway. You've got to come through their official sort of entryways. It's very protected. It's somewhat of a fortress on the horizon when the desert is not a lot going on. If you're not if you're in the desert, if you're in the Middle East and you're not in a city, you don't want to you don't want to be there. <laughs> you're just passing through down. You don't want to just chill on the outskirts of the walls of Jerusalem. And so it's very intimidating. And so God says, Go prophecy against Jerusalem. Jeremiah's like, I'm, I'm sorry, what? You mean like drop off a letter? Maybe just write him, let me just write him a letter from here and I'll send it. He says, no, 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 you're going to go spend your whole life crying and yelling against the people of Jerusalem. And they're never going to listen. That's what you're going to do. And so he says, I will make you a fortified city. I will make you an iron pillar. I will make you bronze walls against the whole land, against the kings, against the people. And even says, they will fight you, but they shall not prevail. Why? Because I am with you. So the, the sovereignty, the power of the Lord, is the Lord who equips Jeremiah. Jeremiah speaks of God often as the creator because he says God's role as creator of the entire world, of the entire universe, this is one of those things that puts him so far above all these other fake gods that there's, I don't even want to actually call them gods. And so God, or Jeremiah talks about the God who is holy, the God who is sovereign, the God who is the creator, he is a living God. He is the God alone who is responsible for making the world. All these other gods, they're fake. Let's look to Jeremiah 10. And I'll read a couple verses, see what we're talking about here. Someone read for us Jeremiah 10, verse 6 through 8. And so he talks about the power, the, the magnificence of God. I don't, my, my translation of verse 8 says, They are both stupid and foolish. The instruction of idols is like wood, is but wood. He said, I, My God is the, the true God, the living God, verse 10. He says, But the Lord is true, but he is living God and everlasting king. At his wrath the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. God is living and active. He is the everlasting king. And all these other kings of Babylon, Assyria, they'll get deposed, they'll die, they'll be dust in the ground. Jeremiah says God is the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. God is disgusted with the sin of the people. And he says when God becomes disgusted with you, you do not stay on the earth much longer. <laughs> God is indignant at the way the nations are acting. I would read verse 11. 
God speaks to Jeremiah, and God says, Thus you shall say to them, The gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. We see this a lot in Job. Job is a big one I can think of, where God is speaking to Job, and he says, Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Were you there when I made the blueprints for the land masses of the earth? I'm sorry, have you seen the storehouses of rain and wind? If you have, tell me. Of course, Job says, no, I didn't see the storehouses of rain. I wasn't there when you made the earth. And so God says, I am the God who has created everything. The earth bows at my command. And we see from verse 12, really all the way through about verse 18, God who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom. When he utters his voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens. He makes lightning for rain and bring forth the wind from storehouses. So a lot of that same imagery we see when we are talking about the sovereignty of the God who has created all of the heavens and the earth. And so the people are dealing with a lot of, really just a lot of idol worship. They, they come to the temple on the right day. They, they offer the sacrifices to God because that's what the priests tell them to do because our friends are at the temple and they know the priest. He's a really nice guy. So they show up and they, they give their offering to the temple. But then they go home and they worship all these other idols because that's what the people around them do. And Jeremiah says, no, you can't do that. You, you, you can't come in here and worship God and then go home and serve idols. That's not his works. And so he, he extols the praise of the one true God. He says, the, your other gods are little idols. They're wooden idols. They're, they're tokens. They didn't, this little block of wood didn't lay the foundation of the earth. Are you insane? They are foolish in the sight of the true God. And so I love, again, these are, these are the kind of poetry, the kind of literature we don't read a ton, we don't study a ton, because you, you've got to take big chunks of it. But it's, it's very eye-opening to see that this kind of, how important this kind of stuff was to the prophets and how, how moving it really is, at least to me. So God alone is God. He has created everything. From, from chapters 2 through 6, and a little bit later on, really in sort of the mid, the middle of the book, chapter like 24, we also see that Jeremiah says, this God, this God who laid the foundations of the heavens and earth, who rules above all the kings of the planet, he calls you, Israel, to a very special relationship. Nobody else. Nobody, he says, he has chosen you to be his people, and what an honor and what a privilege that is. And so we should live up to God's standards. And so God calls Israel to this special relationship. And so we ought to live worthy of that special relationship. He promises to bless the, the city of Jerusalem. He promises to bless the temple of David with, with his name and his presence. As long as the people are obedient. That's a very important condition. You, you might remember when we talked about this before. Really, probably a little bit, just about every few weeks. But the once David builds the temple, once Solomon finishes building the temple, it's this amazing work. It's awesome. It's. It, I think I, I told you guys, it's like a national landmark with the Statue of Liberty, but the only church in town wrapped up in the same building. It's. It's everything to them. And so then they begin to think, well, of course God will dwell here. Of course God will dwell in the temple. David built the temple. Solomon built the temple. God's always going to dwell in the temple. And the prophets say, no. Not if you abandon God. And we'll get to that when we get to Ezekiel. But they, they trusted that just this presence of God would abide even when they were sinning, even when they were abandoning God, even when they were straying from his law. And Jeremiah says, no, that is, that is not the case. 
Flip over to Jeremiah 12. You might see in Jeremiah 11, it says the broken covenant. He talks about how the people, they just do not stay right with God. I want to read this uh, before we get on to the point I'm going to make. Because we're going to read some of the end of verse 12 that talks about how God will, will save people. He will... I'll tell you what, we'll just read that now. I'll come back to what I'm going to say later. Someone read for me Jeremiah 12, 15, and 16. Jeremiah 12, 15, and 16. So, in case you didn't hear Sandy, verse 15 through 17, he says, I will again have compassion on them. I will bring them back. It shall come to pass if they diligently learn the ways of my people to swear by my name, even though they taught my people to worship these false gods, even though they used to swear by Baal, then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. He says, even though you have strayed, even though you have worshipped other gods, if you turn back now, you can still be brought back into the people who I will call my own. And then, of course, verse 17, but if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. So I said we're going to talk about that. We're going to back up a little bit, and I want to read verse 5 and 6 of chapter 12. Because I talked to you how about Jeremiah is, I joked about this, but it really is a great book for those who want to go into ministry, those who struggle with ministry. Maybe you just struggle in your own sort of personal evangelism, just try and talk to your uncle at Thanksgiving because he doesn't want to listen to you about when it comes to the Word of God. And so you get maybe tired of these hard conversations. Jeremiah is very honest about his struggle where he says, God, you called me to this, but this is really, really hard. This is really hard. And I want to read Jeremiah 12, verse 5. God is speaking to Jeremiah after Jeremiah has sort of complained a little bit. He said, if you have raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? If in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? I think another translation says, when the floods of the Jordan rise. He says, if you get tired with men, how will you race against horses? And he's telling Jeremiah, he says, I have called you to a spiritual battle. You are a warrior waging against things that are far beyond your capacity to understand and control. And he says, if you get tired of men, how will you race against the forces that I am calling you to fight? And I just think that is insane, crazy, and awesome to think about. If in a safe land you are so trusting, and in that phrase it really means that if you are so comfortable, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? What will you do when the flood waters rise? If on safe, dry ground you are getting weary, if you are getting tired, if you are not really sure where you're at, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? He says, 
I think about the, the church in this context. We, we talk a lot about when we talk about the prophets or we talk about the kings, we say, well, well, who's the prophets and the kings today? How does that, how do we fit into all this and all this idea of calling and these titles? We know that if we are disciples, we are called to be a part of God, uh, God's work, the work he does through his son. We are called to make disciples, baptize them in, in, in every nation, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are called to Paul talks about running to win the prize a lot, right? That, that, that I beat my body, I discipline myself that I might compete. But I love this idea in Jeremiah where he says, if you get tired racing against me, how will you ever run with the horses? He says, I'm calling you to fight battles that are much greater than just the people of flesh and bone that you see. That are much greater than the people who are going to mock you or poke you or make fun of you or even in Jeremiah's case, beat you with stones and whip you with whips. And he said, if you get tired battling with men, how will you ever wage war with, with the spiritual forces? And I think of the words of Jesus who says, do not fear the one who can kill with the sword. Do not be afraid of the one who can destroy the flesh, but be afraid of the one who can destroy the soul. So, a little heavy for a Sunday morning. But, uh, for some of you might have just woken up, but it's... It's one of those verses that I, I highlight and underline because uh, nobody here, nobody in this congregation, but sometimes, sometimes in ministry, it gets tired racing with men. And it's nice to know the reminder that he has called us all to a little bit of a higher, a higher struggle. So. We'll keep rolling along here. Um, questions about the, the nature of God or anything I have up on there that maybe I didn't talk about, anything we have talked about. Rolling here. There's this big contrast between the God who is sovereign, the God who calls Jeremiah, the God who, who gives Jeremiah his holy word, the God who is over the kings, the God who controls the past, present, and future, and this dark, I would say realistic picture of mankind. Someone read for us Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. Jeremiah 17, verse 9 and 10. This is another one of those that we, we probably have not heard a lot of just, you know, long 40-minute Sunday night sermons on Jeremiah. But if you've heard it, you've probably underlined or highlighted this particular verse. I'm going to read it again just for the, the audio. But the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We've all probably, at some point in our lives, wanted something desired after something. We could even say our heart was in something that was actually at its core horrible for us. We've all longed for something that we had no business being involved in. And Jeremiah says the heart is deceitful. It is desperately sick. Who can understand it? God answers. Jeremiah says who can understand it? God says I. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to to the fruit of his deeds. And so he's talking a little bit about judgment there, right? That's a little bit of judgment language. Being, being judged according to the fruit, or being given according to the fruit of our deeds. But I also just like this idea that the Lord searches the heart and tests the mind. 
And so sometimes what we want for ourselves is, is not very good for us. I think just about any survey statistic will tell you that people in general, when they get into a group, they often want and do and act in ways that are very much against their own interests, that are not good for them. What's the, I think a law enforcement friend of mine said, a person is smart, but people are stupid. I, I, I can trust all of you, but when you get in a riled up emotional mob together, I'm not sure how I feel anymore. Um, but Jeremiah, he, he paints this really this gritty picture of mankind because if you think about where he is, he, he's a prophet. He's prophesying against a wicked king, against fallen people, against a decaying moral society. And so Jeremiah says, we're, we're sick. We're sick. Without God, we have no hope. Only, only God could, could interact with could tolerate us. When, when you read about really any book in the Old Testament, once you, start, once you understand the law and you understand the, the covenant that lays the foundation for everything else that comes afterwards, you can't help but view this picture of Israel as this horrible, infidelous, that's not a word, adulterous partner who God over and over says, okay, we'll try this again. Okay. And I think we all know people like that. Maybe not even in a relationship sense, but people who, who are overly trusting of someone they're close to. Maybe a close friend, maybe even a family member who kind of just treats them poorly at every turn. And then the next day, like, oh, okay, I'm going to go have lunch with so-and-so again. I'm going to call so-and-so again. It, and we look at that person like, oh, that's, that's silly. How would you do that? They're just going to hurt you again. But when you read the story of God, that is actually what God does. And keep in mind, the God who is the creator of the universe, who laid the foundations of the earth, who has the storehouses of the wind and the rain, he says, okay, so you sinned. All right, well, we'll, we'll try this again. But we'll renew the covenant again. I'll pick a prophet for you again. I'll choose a king for you again. I'll choose a leader for you again. Oh, you sinned again. Okay. Well, there's going to be consequences, but let's, we'll figure this out. We'll navigate this. Absolutely. Yeah, I, uh, I was in, I don't remember what class I was in, we were talking a little bit about biblical archaeology, and he talked about how some people criticize the impact of, say, the, the God of the Bible, because they'll say, well, in so many of these areas, even in Israel, like even in the holy cities, we, we have evidence of so many little other idols, and so many trinkets, and so many, and if they worship this one God, why did so many of them have all of these other things? And they, and they said by their estimation, they found that it appeared that only about 10% of the people in that area from their sort of dig seemed to actually be worshiping the God they claimed to follow. I was like, wow, yeah, that doesn't sound familiar at all. Definitely never heard that story. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say 10%. Heck, if I surveyed all the people who uh, say they believe in God, I think 10% would be a generous number of the people who don't have any other idols that get in the way of their love for God. <laughs> And so I just thought that was funny because he was talking about it. And, you know, he's like, well, it doesn't make any sense. If they follow God, but so many of them have all these, we find evidence of all these other tokens and these other totems and, you know, Assyrian gods, Babylonian gods. Yeah. That's actually exactly what Jeremiah tells us is happening. That, that sounds to me like a reinforcement of what I think and I believe. Because Jeremiah says he, he struggles with that. And so that's a big thing. It is really this, this gritty, kind of dark at times picture of mankind. 
uh, chapter 34, I don't think we'll really have time to get there, but chapter 34, verse 8 through 16, Jeremiah talks a lot about how, how man is the one who's defiled the temple that, that God set up, how we oppress one another, we, we treat each other horribly, and how Israel has sinned against God. But in spite of all of that, God still gives us hope. I want to flip back. He talks about this a lot, but I think there's a passage in Jeremiah 4 that says this best. Second bell? Okay, I'll just read Jeremiah 4, 9 real quick. Jeremiah 4, 9. That day declares the Lord, courage shall fail both king and officials, the priests shall be appalled and the prophets astounded. And so when Jeremiah talks about the day of the Lord, he says this is the day where the, the sin of man, the sovereignty of God, will be reconciled once and for all. And that's what Jeremiah says the day of the Lord is. So thank you guys. Uh, if you have some questions or anything, write them down. We'll get some time to answer them or talk about it next week. So thank you all.